Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Humanize Me. I'm Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. And I guess that makes me a podcaster, which is funny because I don't think of myself as a podcaster. I mean, I never introduced myself that way at a party or anything. You know, if people say, who are you? What do you do? I say, oh, you know, I, I'm a community builder or I'm a counselor. Um, a lot of times I'll say I'm the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. And that's true. I am. I mean, it's not a paid gig. It's a volunteer thing, but it, it's, it's a big part of my identity. It's, it's something that I really care about doing. But you know what? This podcast is a big part of what my identity these days. And I really care about this, but I, I never call myself a podcaster, but I put this stuff out and you listen to it. And then you write me emails back and tell me what you think and suggest new ideas or topics and guests and things. And it's kind of this conversation that we're having. And, and so maybe that's why I don't think of myself as a podcaster. Cause I think like, I'm just part of this conversation, but I'm realizing lately that I'm not doing a very good job of curating this conversation um, because there's no place for all the people that listen to this show to, to talk to each other. I mean, people can talk to me. It's easy enough to go to my website, barkcampola.org and fire off an email and I always write back and that's all good and well. But there's this other, like, I think people want to start talking to each other. And I was talking to this guy this week, a friend of mine, a guy named John DeLynn who runs a podcast called Mormon Stories. That is, I mean, if you haven't checked out, even if you're not post-Mormon or struggling with Mormonism, if you're totally outside of that, it's still, it's this amazing podcast where he has this, all these different people coming on and telling their stories and, and, and of, of transitioning out of Mormonism or struggling to stay within it because of family stuff. It's a very similar conversation to the one that, a lot of us are having here on Humanize Me, but it's very specific to the Mormon thing. But I think you'd find lots of it's transferable. And John, I mean, he's built this thing over the last 11 years into a incredible ministry. He helps so many people sort of sort things out. And um, one of the things I noticed when I started looking at his website was that after each episode, there's this conversation. There's this all these comments and people commenting on comments and all this stuff. And it's really... It's really, I think because he has such a warm and kind audience, it's a warm and kind conversation. And I'm thinking we could do that. And I don't know whether we should do it on Facebook, like start a humanize me page on Facebook, or whether we should do it on the website on, on barcampola.org. Sometimes I think we ought to change, we ought to get a, a, a website called humanize me for the podcast. So it doesn't seem like it's like all about Bard. Um, but however we do it. I want to get that conversation going in the next few weeks because I, I, I know from the feedback I get that there's a lot of people that want to talk to each other, you know. And one of the things is it's interesting. I got a, an email last week from somebody who was like, hey, are you trying to start a new religion? I mean, is that what this is for you? And, you know, initially, whenever anybody says, are you trying to start a new religion? You know, the immediate the the it's, it's it, it, the correct answer is no. You should never say, yes, I'm try trying to start a new religion. Just as you should never say, like, I'm trying to start a cult. Like, there are things you just don't own, even if they're true. But I got an email last week from a woman um, named Hera Rains. And Hera was married to this guy named Albert Rains, who had, he, I guess he did try to start a religion called polydoxy. 
And I went, I, she, she, I met her at an event that I spoke at and she, she hooked me up with this website and I checked it out and there, there was a lot of good stuff there. And then there was a lot of stuff I didn't fully understand, but there was this line that jumped out at me right at the beginning where Albert Rain says in a time when many state they are not religious or do not have a religion, quote unquote, their understanding of these words is needlessly narrow. A broader definition of religion as, quote, the human person's response to finitude is humbly offered. I love that definition. The human person's response to finitude. I guess religion would seem to me not just a person, but a group of human beings together trying to respond to finitude. Uh, you know, I just go like, yes. It, it, and and, and if, if that's what a religion is, you go like, are you trying to come up with one? I absolutely am. Because for me, my humanism began when I realized that this life was the only one I had. And my immediate response was, how do I make the most of it? And over a, a lot of thinking and talking and, and experiencing, I came to the conclusion that the way you make the most of this life is by building loving relationships. And by cultivating a sense of gratitude for the privilege of consciousness and, and for the wonder of, of just that's all around us in the universe. And, and especially by doing work that makes a positive difference in other people's lives. The, the, the people that have built these kinds of relationships and cultivated this sense of gratitude and that are doing work that matters, work that, that makes things better for others, these are the people that always seem to be flourishing. These are the people that always seem to, to be surrounded by a sense of peacefulness and meaning and hope and, and joy. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess I am trying to start a religion because I am trying to get a bunch of people together and, and get them thinking about what's the best way to respond to finitude. And, and, and especially that last part, making a difference in the lives of other people. Coming up next is a conversation that I had this week with a guy named Brian Cateman. And, and Brian is the leader, the founder really, of this kind of movement called Reducitarianism. He's a reducitarian. And if you say, I don't know what that means, you will in a few minutes. And oddly enough, you may find out that you are a reducitarian and you didn't even know it. That's kind of what happened to me. But at the bottom line, Brian is a young guy who was tr who's really sat down and said, how do I use my skills, use my time, use my energy, use my love to make the world better for other people? And not just other people, but for animals, for any living thing out there. And, and, he, and he came up with a really cool strategy, and we'll talk about that. And uh, I, think you'll, I think you'll dig the conversation. I hope so. Um, but it's just part of this conversation. And, and I, was, I was looking at the list of topics that people have been sending me in and the stuff that we're going to be talking about in weeks to come. And, and I just want to let you know, like, if you're worried that this podcast is going to go away, it's not. Because... There's a lot for us to talk about. Like there's a lot of us that are trying to make sense of life on the other side of faith or who never had faith, but are kind of sick of, of a negative approach to, to being a non-believer. That's all about what we don't believe. And, and there are a lot of people that are saying like, look, I want to, I want to be part of a community that's built around positive values. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing here. And that's what we're building here. And that's what we're promoting here. And so if you're into it, I'm, I'm glad. 
And either way, hang, you're going to meet somebody who's into it. So it's like, here's my conversation with Brian Cateman. I hope you like it. Let me know. BartCampolo.org. Go. You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. I ended up becoming the chaplain at USC. I got to know all these students. They're super smart, especially some of my, the grad students I work with. And these are these, these are these kids that are like, yeah, I don't believe in God, but I want to make the world a better place. So in the last six months, I would say that maybe five or six of my most excited, motivated, wonderful, secular humanists, they're all coming to me going like, hey, Bart, effective altruism. Like they, they, they gave me the book. There's kind of this key book at the center of the movement. Yeah. And so I still haven't figured out what it is. I think you'd love it. I mean, I, I get the idea of using sort of rational scientific thinking to figure out how to make the most of your resources. But how does yeah. that play itself out? Like as a movement, like what is like, like they're like, we play these games. Like what, what are the, ga- <laughs> what are the games? Well, I can, I can give you a concrete example of that. So let's say you're deciding what kind of cause area you want to work on. Do you work on environmental issues? Do you work on global poverty? Do you work on, um, I don't know, whatever, what whatever do you care about? The, yeah. What do you care about? Yeah. But it turns out there are certain cause areas that are more important than others in the sense that they might be, for example, neglected, meaning that there aren't a lot of people working on that issue. And so there's more need for someone to, to fill that space. Or it might be that there, you can alleviate a lot more suffering um, by focusing on that issue versus another. So just as a, like a really concrete example, let's say you care about animals. If you care about animals, you might know that there are, you know, let's say a million dogs, I don't know the exact number, dogs and cats, some, some amount of dogs and cats in the world that are perhaps being tortured. But the amount of farmed animals that are, are suffering is on the order of billions, perhaps 70, 100 billion. And so just by re sort of strategizing your focus from dogs and cats to farmed animals, you'll be able to decrease suffering a lot more effectively. And so there's like all these nuances around how you spend your time, what cause areas you choose. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, and I'm, uh, so I'm it's not almost an like, It's almost like do good or geekdom. Yeah, totally. That's a great way. That could be the slogan. <laughs> <laughs> they might they might steal that from you that's good because because i mean it's 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 people that are like look i want to do good but like i do think like i i want to i want to really do the math on this and and get the most bang for my buck or get the most bang for my hour of voluntary work exactly okay and and you for another good example is whether you should work for a high paying career so should you work on wall street make several hundred thousand dollars a million dollars and then just give half your money away. Because, you know, if you work for a charity, let's say that charity is paying you $50,000 and you're doing really, really good work. But what if you made $500,000 and then gave $250,000 to that charity and then they could hire five people with a salary of $50,000 to do five times the amount of work that you could do? And so it's, it's, I think about replaceability a lot personally. I never want to be in a position where I'm replaceable because if I'm replaceable, then I'm replaceable. Then my then then my impact could could exist without me being there. Um, that's personally one that that 
See, that's, that's the- such a weird way of thinking for me. I, I, I'll give you an example. In my marriage, I'm replaceable. Like there are many men who could provide for my wife, be a good friend to my wife and have sex with my wife. I'm replaceable, but I don't want to be replaced. <laughs> um, because it's not, it's not rational, though. I like being in that position. Being sure. my wife's husband makes my life more meaningful and makes, causes me to flourish. And so part of my motivation in life is to do good and certainly to do good for my wife. But part of my motivation in life is to flourish in the process of doing good. And so it's not just a matter of how effective I am. It's also a matter of what's the feedback loop. But that's the, that's the second part of it, because you can't be effective if you're not flourishing. So effective altruism is not about becoming a martyr or sacrificing your happiness for the, for the greater good. You have to know who you are and think about what you're good at and what would make you happy. So, you know, maybe, maybe with your wife, for example, it's not the, it's not the best uh, topic because it's completely irrational. You know, love is not something that we really are logical about, but there might be another job that you really like, or that you're really good at, in which your impact could be three times as great. Or maybe instead of donating to a dog and cat charity, you consider donating to a farmed animal charity. And there are lots of simple things that we can do um, in our everyday life that don't require you know, you to sell your house or to uh, give all your money away or, or more extreme things like that. Boy, you effective altruism people are almost the enemy of us <laughs> emotion-based fundraisers like you know because like in my in my old days as a you know i'd get up and tell stories about like so there's this kid in my neighborhood and this happened and like people are crying by the end of it and and i'm like you can help kids like that if you write a check to this and it's like i'm telling the story not that not to say what we do with your money is the most effective way to alleviate um you know illiteracy but rather, I'm, I'm, I'm tugging at your heartstring. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I almost feel like you've brought up a, a subtle critique of effective altruism in that most people do not donate for logical reasons. Most people have, are busy and don't have the, the time to read seminal textbooks about altruism and, and effective evaluation. And so uh, there is something to be said for the limitations of effective altruism that it's going to be hard for it to reach millions and millions of people in a meaningful way, if it is the fact that our, our brains are you know, wired to not really respond well to logical arguments and are more likely to respond to a really cute cat, for example, yeah. or a really cute story. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, all of the effective altruism groups are using those kinds of devices uh, to a degree, but this is a very intellectual community and targeting people who are very smart and very wealthy might be, uh, for example, perhaps a more effective altruist type strategy. For, um, for effective altruism. For effective altruism. Yeah. You, right? And, and, you and know there's what, a debate about that. And you know, what's interesting is what I think is, I think it's a little bit like, um, well, I read this great article in The Atlantic about free will, mm. that basically the top scientists have come to the conclusion that there's no such thing that like, if you could drill down and understand things well enough, like everything's determined. Right. But what they've also, these scientists have also figured out is, is that once people realize that everything is determined, that they lose the motivation to be moral. That like, if somebody's just read an article that 
basically debunks the idea of free will and then they're walking down the street, they're much more likely to walk by somebody who's in pain because they're like, you know what? If I walk by this person who's in pain, it was really the only thing that was going to happen anyway. <laughs> and so what they find is that it's a very demotivational truth. Free will is the kind of thing you should believe in for yourself, but not when you encounter other people. You shouldn't believe that they have it. I love that. I love that mental gymnastics. Yeah. And I think that effective altruism, it sounds like, I should use effective altruism to figure out what cause I'm going to, I'm going to work for. But then once I figured out, like, I'm going to work for this animal rights cause, then I should switch back. And when I go out to speak, I should go back to all my, I shouldn't make the, the arguments that got me to do it are not the arguments that I should use when I'm speaking. I should tell a tear jerking story. I agree with you. And it definitely depends on who your target audience is, but certainly in our work for the, for the masses, for example, when we're trying to get millions of people to reduce the amount of animal products that they consume. We do want to engage in some of the logical arguments, um, but we also want to show, you know, pictures of the planet being destroyed. And we want to show pictures of, you know, animals suffering from cruelty. Uh, people are not only moved uh, and generally not moved by statistics and logical statements. They're moved by emotion. So right. I, I think that's right. All right. So, which is a great segue into what I want to actually want to talk to you about. Cause like, how do you get from Staten Island, New York to being the guru of reducitarianism? <laughs> oh my, that's a great question. Well, you know, I will say religion did play a big part in, in my journey because growing up, I had kind of a tough childhood. I'm much happier in my twenties than I was in my, let's say like 10 to 20. And my father who is alive and is a beautiful human being um, was uh, very keen on saying things like if I believed in God enough or if I prayed uh, things would get better I just had to have faith God gives us um, uh, obstacles so that we can rise above it and even if even if you believe in God that part of it didn't really make sense to me it just didn't make sense why some being would be you know, creating obstacles for me or involved in my everyday experience. And so just intuitively, it didn't make sense to me. High school, I didn't really, I didn't really gain any tremendous knowledge that sort of deflated all of this. I didn't learn about evolution. In college, I took a, a where, biology Where did you class. go to college? Where'd you go? I went to the Macaulay Honors College uh, at the College of Staten Island. Okay. So it's a, a community college there that's part of a, the City University of New York's honors system. I was very lucky to have gone into it. There was halfway through the semester, we're learning about evolution. And I remember raising my hand and asking the professor in a very serious way, uh, how do, where does Adam and Eve fit into this? Oh my and gosh. Totally, you know, deadpan. And I remember the professor who I, I adore and thinks is a great man, handled it very well and explained that we would learn more about scientific theory and, and how this is an alternative explanation for um, where all species come from. Um, that's a, I, it's an amazing story just because you, you weren't swept up in a church environment or in a synagogue environment. It was this home environment that we, that wove a kind of a, a lens around you so that you saw the world through those eyes. But for you, it must've been really liberating. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, I, I think those years were among the most exciting times in my life where everything that I thought was was possibly wrong. Here was this entire universe of people 
an, an set of ideas that explains uh, an alternative version of it. And it's like there and, are explanations for things. It's amazing. And it was it, it, it radiates out because it's not just, you know, where did humans come from? You, you know, people who have gone through this experience understand the, the ripple effect that can come from that and, and thinking about. Uh, our our behaviors, our thoughts, uh, how the universe comes to be—it's just remarkable. And it and it totally crumbled. I mean, and I became obsessed, right? Like I now, my father had a had an adversary who, anytime he said something, right, you're that like, that's I not how that with. works. No, and I I was really passionate about it. But now now here's the thing: you seem like such a nice guy. That's right. And I think I, I'm a nice guy. And I know your dad was a nice guy. Because like you still talk about him in glowing terms, even though he sold you the weirdest bill of goods. So I'm guessing like, did you, when you first, you and your dad are talking like, are you, were you an angry atheist? I was, I was furious. I was, I was in my, in my college, I was not a productive atheist. I made a lot of enemies. I was very angry and I was scared, quite frankly. I was scared that and you have to understand, I was growing up in Staten Island, where this is, you know, it, this is a, a place where there is a lot of people who are, are quite religious, don't have a tremendous amount of, uh, of education. I mean, of course, there are tons of smart people there, too. But it's just you have to, you know, the, the setting here. It's not Manhattan. It's not Los Angeles. Um, and I was very scared because I was surrounded by all these people who didn't understand that what they believed wasn't true. And um, I also felt sorry for my dad at points. I, I remember having a conversation with him and telling him I want to become an evolutionary biologist and I want to study this for the rest of my life. And I remember crying at, at a, a dinner one night because I knew that he would never understand what I was thinking and what I was feeling. And what and you were I, excited I would, about, what you were genuinely like, the world is wonderful. Yeah, no, totally. And at, and at the same time, which I think was an overreaction on my part, I felt very sorry for him that he believed such illogical, odd things. I mean, it's just when you sort of view it as this idea that has infiltrated someone's brain and they're not able to uh, escape it, it can feel very sad if you love the person. But the, the truth is that as I've become you know, someone who thinks more in terms of how can I increase well-being in the world, how can I decrease suffering... It is more complicated because someone like my father is the happiest guy in the world, man. He's so happy. And part of it is because he really thinks that there is this uh, incredible being in the world who's always there for him. He's so excited to go to heaven and to see his family. He can't wait for me to go there. And he's a happy guy. Yeah, and no, I, mean, I don't want to take that away from him. And that's the funny thing is like when I first showed up at USC, all the other chaplains there, all the, they were f uh, fearful. They thought I was there to like de-convert all of their people and i was like oh no 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 like there's all these secular people over there i'm here to kind of create fellowship and community for them and like your christian kids as long as they're thriving in your community i'm gonna leave them alone yeah i i guess i guess for me having not totally sorted out this issue myself is are there other repercussions that from from having these sets of beliefs that we we have trouble tolerating so for example someone who's really religious might they vote differently might they uh, say different things in their community that have some kind of some negative impact Might they kill a bunch of animals because they think that animals exist to be killed exactly yeah so i, I don't know how to sometimes sort out you know, the ideas um, 
from the actions. And I think that's a major criticism of a lot of, uh, you know, new atheists or, or secularists who are understand that someone like my father is very happy and they're very happy for me and they're happy that there's more happiness in the world. But is it possible that there's actually more unhappiness in the world because there are lots of people um, who think those things? Yeah. And we don't have the answers. We don't know exactly. Um, but there's nothing, nothing will bad will come from promoting science, promoting critical reasoning, uh, et cetera. Okay. I don't think. Okay. So like, I've got you, I've got you coming out of college. I've got you even getting to the place where you're excited about all this stuff. And I know the, like the, 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 the reason my friend John said, you got to talk to Brian is because you're doing this reducitarian thing. And as soon as I heard the word, it's, I mean, what an amazing movement that like, the name of the movement, as soon as I, as soon as I, I heard it, I was like, oh, I know what that is. That's, that's great to hear. And that was definitely part of our thinking. Yeah. So essentially, I came up with this concept called the Reducitarian Campaign or Reducitarianism. And it's the very simple idea that we as individuals should consider eating fewer animal products. So uh, red meat, poultry, seafood, eggs, dairy with respect to our own diet. And we should do that for a lot of reasons. Uh, factory farming is terrible for the environment in terms of its emissions, water footprint, biodiversity loss. In terms of factory farm cruelty, there are 70 billion farmed animals that are abused on factory farms every year. And then in terms of human health, we're seeing rises in, in heart disease, certain types of cancers, strokes, diabetes, obesity, all of which are linked to overconsumption of animal products. But the, the problem, is that meat consumption today is typically viewed as an all or nothing premise. So you're either a vegetarian or a vegan, or you're not. But the truth is that there are so many choices every single day that we make in between that, and that we need to move away from purity, and we need to move toward effectiveness and impact. And so what I mean by that is that if a person's unwilling to become a vegan or a vegetarian, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't do something about it. They shouldn't contribute. They could simply eat less meat with respect to their own diet. And I know, you know, there are probably listeners who think that that isn't very obvious. It's very simple. It makes total sense. But it's, it is even in some circles still viewed as quite controversial because it's, it's allowing people to make changes to their diet without forcing them to go all the way. But the reason that we do that is because we think that we're going to be able to make a larger difference by encouraging more people to participate than by focusing on the few people that will specifically become, for example, a vegan. Um, and so we have at our nonprofit called the Reducitarian Foundation, we have lots of initiatives to encourage people to engage with this message that they should consider cutting back on the amount of animal products that they consume. Wow. In many ways, in my Christian life and in my post-Christian life, I feel like I'm almost a reducer supernaturalism <laughs> person where a lot of times like I'm trying to get help people develop less bizarre like I'm friends with all these people in the Christian world who are part of a, a movement called red letter Christianity and you know focus on the teachings of Jesus and in a weird way like they're dialing down like they're like Christianity is more about following the teachings of Jesus that we should love other people and less about like going to heaven when you die but but the angry atheist is like, no, you must don't give those people any quarter at all. But then you lose, then you're out of conversation with them. I, I love this because I really do see some really fascinating similarities. 
you know, I was very much attracted to the Richard Dawkins type person when I first started. I read The God Delusion. I read it over and over and over again. And it just put me on this amazing path. There's a similar relationship with, for example, with PETA, which is often viewed as this like extreme animal rights group. And it gets people to be really excited about helping animals. And the hope, at least I hope, is that then people start to become more thoughtful about it. So they start to think about it in terms of impact. And so I love the idea of telling someone to be less religious, to be more critical thinking. My dad doesn't have to, to stop, you know, praying for the parking lot spot, but maybe, you know, he votes in a different way. Or, or, or so even, or, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or you sort of go like, does it really make sense that if there is this God that he's going to condemn, like, half of humanity to hell for having the wrong theology. And so I, a lot of times I'm sort of saying to a Christian that they should end up becoming like a universalist Christian. Like if Jesus is true and he loves everybody and if God is as good as your dad says he is, <laughs> right? then at least go to the place where you're like, I think God will save everybody regardless of their theology. And you know, this is this is what you're saying is that all irrational beliefs are not equal. There are some irrational beliefs that are worse than others. And uh, we have to be mindful of that. And this gets back and to... And then sometimes there's a progression where you go from believing 10 irrational beliefs to believing five. Right. And then down to three. And, and if I can get you on that continuum, on that movement, eventually, like, like Richard Dawkins, I love him for some people. But for some people, he drives them away from reducing their supernaturalism. He gets them right. to double down on their supernaturalism. And that's actually more harmful sometimes. Totally. Same, same with telling someone that they're a murderer for eating animal Oh my gosh. The, vegans, a bad the, vegan, the, the militant vegans have done so much harm to animals because they have gotten people to go like, well, fuck you. I'm going to eat four hamburgers. You know? Right. Yeah. No one responds well to being told that they're stupid, that they're immoral, that they are not a good person. But we have to think about what we say in terms of its impact on the planet, because that's I think that's the broader point. I like science. Right. I came from a scientific background. I have a degree in evolution biology, conservation biology. But truth is an instrument. It's not something useful in itself. And ooh, we have ooh, to... that's good. That's really good. I, like, <laughs> did you make that up or did you hear that from somebody? I'm sure I read that from someone way smarter Truth than me. Truth is an instrument. Yeah, in the service of something bigger. Absolutely. Wow. That's exactly right. That's... We need to be focusing on impact. And that's where effective altruism comes into me. I'm, I'm a utilitarian at heart. I just want to see the world again. And I don't mean to be corny about it, but it really helps me focus on what matters. I just want to see the world with more smiles and less frowns. I want more, more individuals, more, more sentient beings to be happy. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because you, you've come to the place where you, the big line for you is between sentient beings and rocks, not between right. humans and everything else. No, because that's a totally artificial distinction. Yeah. That's an us, them that doesn't really make sense. Like if, if animals have moral codes, if animals feel grief, if animals feel fear, then animals are in a sense persons because they have a personality. I think that's exactly right. And any, yeah. anybody that has a dog knows this cats. I'm not so sure, but like dogs, everybody <laughs> knows this. Well, and the, 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 the realization from this is that there are more, you know, non-human animals than there are humans. 
And so if we really are serious about making the world a better place, we better get serious about how we're going to help animals, how we're going to help not only humans, but non-human animals too. And it's funny because the people that are, are, are sort of the, the obstacles to this, what's funny is, is that they value human life so much that you could, you could give me a human being that wasn't any longer sentient. That, that brain damaged, you know, Karen Ann Quinlan, like lying on a bed, hooked up to, um, you know, what, what, what they used to call in a very pejorative way, vegetable, like in a vegetative mm -hmm. state. And they would fight to the, to, the, to the last man to keep her alive. Because although she's not human, she is sentient. Although she's not sentient, she's still human in their mind. But then you can give a pig that is really aware of what's going on, smarter than a dog, like really knows what's going on around it. And they're in terror because they're being herded down a p and they go like, yeah, well, you know, kill that pig. Yeah, there are just all these cognitive biases that make us favor humans more than, you know, animals. Have you, have you read anything by Franz DeWall? Yep, the primatologist. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Because he just put out a book that I think your, your gang would love mm. called are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? Oh, I haven't read that yet. Oh, it's all about animal kind of intelligence and that we humans have been measuring animal intelligence through human lenses so long that what we're really asking is, are they, are they smart like us instead mm -hmm. of, are they smart? Right, right. Agreed. But it is, I'll just say it is interesting I view this intelligence question as an instrument. Again, it's not really that meaningful to me that, that some, someone or some being is intelligent. All that I care about is whether they can experience pain or happiness. So you can be really not that intelligent or not that capable of thinking clearly, but you can react to pain. We see this in, in spectrums of humans as well. Um, so I think it's, it comes back to the device, right? People respond well. Oh, it's smart. It must, must be considered. Uh, in my in my my thinking and how I you know choose certain actions. That's an emotional but hit, yeah. That's an emotional hit, but um, obviously, like chickens, they are very smart. Like they can solve puzzles. They, it, you know, there's lots of studies that have been done showing that they're uh, smart, but they're not as smart as you or, or, or me. I mean, we have to be honest about it, right? They're just they're. But but what matters is that they experience pain. I mean, they do experience pain, and it's it's plainly obvious when you see. Um, a chicken react to its conditions on a factory farm, for example. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah no, that's good. I mean, because like when I say smart, like what's interesting is in the same way that like when when somebody says happiness, I go like, yeah, but what you really mean is flourishing. And I think right. when I say smart, what I really mean is thinking and feeling. And, yeah. and 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 you're right. Some people think a lot and don't feel a lot, and some people feel a great deal even though they're not thinking at a super high level. Yeah, and so. We need to care about feelings as much as we care about anything. Right. I agree. Wow. And then, and then the question becomes, what do you, you know, what do you do? I mean, so, okay, people on, on your listening to this, they, they get it. You know, non-human animals feel pain, but what can I do? Because there's, the, the problem is, is that people choose food based on cost, based on convenience, and based on taste. Those are the primary reasons people choose their food. And so how do you get someone to make changes to their diet that is aligned with their values, particularly when meat is uh, often cheap, 
it's often convenient and it's often quite tasty. Now, I love plant-based meals, don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, I, I remember what it's like to have uh, me and it's, it's quite a good experience and, and tasty. So that's why encouraging people, I think, to make small changes to their diet is the way to go. And let me just put this in, in mathematical terms for a second. My father eats 300 pounds of meat a year, 300 pounds, right? So if I get him to cut back on his meat intake, let's say 20%, so going from 300 to 240 pounds, that's a 60 pound of meat reduction. Versus if I get someone who's eating five pounds of meat a year or 10 pounds of meat a year to go vegetarian, that's a difference of 10 pounds. So it seems like it's obvious that it's a much bigger win to get people who are eating large amounts of meat to cut back a percentage of their meat intake than to worry about creating a world filled with vegans and vegetarians. It just doesn't make sense. If you look at the current situation, very few people are vegan or vegetarian. Most people who say that they are vegan or vegetarian are actually not when you're when they're in, in studies or you actually ask them. There was a funny article about drunkitarians, people who eat meat every time that they're drunk. And the more the more pressing point is that people who eat less meat are more likely to become vegetarian and people who are vegetarian are more likely to become vegan anyway, even though I don't think that's what necessarily matters. What matters? What matters is helping as many animals, helping as many humans, and protecting the planet. And the way that we're going to get there is by decreasing our reliance on factory farm meat. And so that's my intense pitch about, about no, why that's, I think I mean, I'm this. so with you. I can't even believe how with you I am. I mean, because like last year, when like I'm working with all these students, half of them are vegetarians. So my, my wife and I, we make a meal for them every week. So we were making meals and then having a vegetarian option. And finally, the veg, like a lot of, we realized like, you know, it would be actually more convenient for us cooking wise. If we just, it's only one meal a week. So like, let's just make it a vegetarian meal. The meat eaters aren't going to like, and we asked all the meat eaters, like, are you cool with this? And they're like, yeah, as long as it's a good meal. And so we, we switched it. Well, the, these guys got us thinking. And they were like, what I realized is, is that if I was totally living out my ideals, I would be a I would be a vegetarian. I would be a vegan probably. If I, right. you know, if I totally lived out what I believe about like the environment and animals. And so in some sense, reducitarianism sort of goes like, look, if we can just get you to cut down a little bit, maybe you can see like, maybe there's a half step or along a the way. And maybe it doesn't even matter if you get there. The goal is to reduce societal meat consumption. So if we get more people to participate, I think we're going to have a much greater chance of doing that than if we focus on, on vegetarian or vegan. Purity. To, be, to be clear, every single meal that we have is an opportunity to make a healthier, more compassionate, and eco-friendly choice. But it is a, a choice every single meal. And so what I say to people is to have as many of those meals as possible. But we wouldn't, for example, if I told you I exercised six times this week, your reaction would be like, holy shit, that's really impressive. Probably, right? right? You wouldn't say to me, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you exercise that other day this week? That's the kind of, of thing that we're talking about here is we're not at a place where it's, it's easy for the whole world to go vegan or vegetarian. And again, we're going to be more successful in our ultimate goal by being positive, by being complimentary, rather than telling people they're losers or failures or things like that. So it, it, just, it's, it just comes down to impact. It's glass half empty versus glass half, half full. Like, oh, wow, you reduced, you, 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 you had more good meals rather than yep. you had not enough good meals. Exactly.
Yep, that's exactly right. And also think about your audience. You know, my father is not going to go vegan. It's just, it's just not going to happen. It's laughable. I mean, seriously, it's in, totally insane to him that this is even happening, that I've chosen this as my, my, my path. And, but he's open to doing Meatless Monday. Why? Because I'm like, Dad, I really love you, and I want you to be around you know, for a long time. Could you please eat more fruits and vegetables? I mean, it's that simple. Someone like you, who's clearly you know, very smart and well thought out, I might say to you, like, look, like, you know, animals really matter. You understand things like sentience. Like, you should care about that. So it's, my point is that reducitarianism is also inclusive of motivations. It does whatever, not works. Ma- whatever works. Whatever works. It doesn't matter to the animals or to the planet or to our bodies what your intentions are. If you meet someone who's a cheapskate, just tell them that they'll save money by, for example, when they go to like a Chipotle, they can get, you know, a veggie burrito instead of the meat burrito and they'll save $1.50. I mean, those kinds of sentiments um, work on people. Wow. Did you actually invent the word reducitarian? I did. My, so my colleague, Tyler Alterman, and I, we were brainstorming around what kind of concept we wanted to come up with and what would the word be, and we came up with the word together. Oh, my gosh, because like, I'm convinced that that word will become part of common parlance <laughs> in the next 10 years. And, I sure hope so. And you invented it. And we Googled it, by the way. So we Googled the word, and there were no hits, right? So we did come up with the word. <laughs> which is neat <laughs> i mean it's a great word i mean it's just i just can't tell you how much i love this word i mean i think that probably everybody who's listening to my podcast i would say probably 95 percent of the people that are listening to this podcast will immediately go oh i'm a reducitarian right as soon as they hear the word they're like yeah i'm trying to do that it's great so and it's okay if they, it's okay if they don't it's okay you know it's just a device right it's the same thing identities are really powerful we like to be consistent with our identities so if you view yourself as a reducitarian you're more likely to actually eat less meat because you want to you know be consistent with who you think that you are but there are people who say that they're a semi-vegetarian or they're flexitarian it doesn't matter what word you choose or whether you choose to embrace it or not this is just one more helpful addition and you're right it doesn't matter on one level but in terms of an idea going viral or or a meme getting out there yeah it has to be sticky and reducitarianism is way stickier than semi-vegetarian which is basically telling you what in the same way that i tell people like call yourself a humanist rather than an atheist an atheist is telling is identifying yourself by what you're not Mm-hmm. And a semi-vegetarian says, like, it's what I'm not really. Right. Whereas a reducitarian right. is like, I am, you know, like, like yeah. and this is a, a, an yeah. identity. Like, I'm, I'm helping. I, That's I'm right. Growing. It's meant to be positive. I'm getting healthier. Like, all these things are happening in a good way. So, yeah. So, so how are you doing it? Like, how are you getting the word out? Literally getting the word out there. A, a lot of it is our online outreach. So my skill set is in marketing and PR. And so I've leveraged that to help spread the word as best I can. Of course, we have like our social media, right? So we engage people on, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and we create this sort of community of people who are excited about eating fewer animal products. I, I just published an op-ed in the Washington Post a few weeks ago. I'm publishing another op-ed somewhere soon. Um, and then two things I'm really excited about are we're publishing a book with Penguin Random House that is now available for pre-order on Amazon. And we're holding a conference. Wait, wait, what's the, bo- uh, what's the book called? The book is called The Reducitarian Solution. Nice. The Reducitarian Solution. Could, Thanks for the extra plug. And you could go to Amazon right now and you could order this book. 
you can. And all of the proceeds go directly to our nonprofit, the Reducitarian Foundation. Okay. All right. So, 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 okay. I, I, People got that. And, and, and I've got that. But like, what I want to know is what, like, what's in the book? Is it, is it, yeah. is it just an argument for reducitarianism or is there, what, what's in it's there? It's not. So that'll be a, that'll be a future book. So that will, that will happen. But this book is, is meant to be highly introductory. So it's, it's meant for people who are interested in learning more about the, the topics surrounding meat consumption. So environmental, human health, animal welfare, marketing of the meat industry. It's a compilation of essays from 70 experts who talk about all these issues from their perspective. And it's paired with recipes. So vegan, vegetarian, and less meat recipes to help put these perspectives in, uh, into action. And it's, so it's a great introductory book for someone who is interested in learning more about this. And that's the point of reducitarianism. It's not meant for people who already understand this, right? This is the point. It's meant for people who are, have maybe never given it thought or have heard about crazy things like veganism and vegetarianism. So it's really cool and I'm really excited about wow, it. Wow, you, you reach out to these people and they go, yeah, I'll help you. Yeah, and that, that's another strategy, right? So how do you get people who are connected to large audiences to promote your message? And part of that is having a message that they agree with. They might be hesitant to promote veganism or vegetarianism, but they're super excited um, to tell people that they should eat less meat because it's really not controversial. I mean, it's controversial in the sense that there are other people who think we should be pushing all or nothing black and white messages, but it's not controversial to people who are not in that camp. No, so, no, no, like, like, like Seth Godin isn't going to lose market share or listeners. They're not going to go like, well, I'm pissed to him because he told me I was a jerk. Like he's not going to lose anybody by saying you should le eat less, le less meat. But you do lose people if you say like you need to be a vegetarian or you're not a good person. Totally. Yeah, it would lose me. I don't like that. I mean, I just don't like that sentiment, even though I understand it. It just, it just feels very, you know, forceful. It feels very, honestly, it feels very fundamentalist. Yeah. It feels very extremist. That's right. That's a great point. Well, listen, okay, so it's reducitarianism. It's re, it's reducitarian.org. That's right. And it's the reducitarian solution, solution the is the book on, on Amazon that you can pre-order. Yep. And you're Brian Cateman with a K if I want to yes. look you up or find you. Um, and, and please feel free to reach out to me anytime. I'm just at brian at reducitarian.org. And if you did, if you did hear this and you have interesting thoughts to share, or you just want to let me know how your eat less meat journey is going, please do shoot me a message. You are a fine person. I'm so happy that your dad taught you to be nice. Um, <laughs> My dad's a great guy. And, and I'm so happy that you went to college and I'm just so happy to be in connection with you. And, and thanks for being with me, man. Likewise, my friend, it's great to know you. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. All right. Okay. So that was my conversation with Brian. Actually, the conversation I actually had with him was like two hours long, but, uh, we know better these days than to put up a two hour podcast. And so I hope that that was enough to get you to go over to reducitarian.org. Um, and, you know, you can find out more about Brian on the website. I'll be back next week. Um, if I seem excited these days, it's because I sense something good happening in, in, in the world around this idea of 
a humanist community around this idea of people gathering together and saying, I think we can make the most of our lives better if we make the most of our lives together. And so uh, that's where the energy is coming from these days, at least in my life. And I'm glad to share it with you and I'll see you next week. Go out there and respond to finitude by living a life that suggests that the opportunity is infinitely valuable. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.